Welcome back to the Bible in Context. Um, if everybody's still hanging with us after the genealogies last week, um, good, glad you're back. This week we're going to talk about the sons of God, so that's a fun topic. I think um, probably given our direction so far, you can probably guess where we're at on this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is this is one of those uh, topics that's very uh, controversial. Yeah, and for some reason it can it can rub people the wrong way. But I think there's a pretty solid argument for the sons of God to be spiritual beings. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah. Well, we've already talked about the uh, the Akalu last time, these demigods that, you know, the gods came down and mated with women and produced the Akalu, these givers of knowledge. Well, well in, what story was that from? Because uh, that's not a biblical it's, story. It's actually quite a few. Um, okay. Gilgamesh, he's he's two thirds god, one third man. He's an Akalu. Okay. Um, so, I, it was pretty typical to call, uh, like in the ancient Near East, that, that, that was common language. Um, uh, the the Apkalu are particularly Mesopotamian, okay, um, and I think that's what, at least per the the books we're going to talk about, that's who they're jabbing in the eye with this story. Okay, is. all right, so so yeah, their story, the Mesopotamian story. Uh, what's like contrast them? What, what's the difference between the Mesopotamian story versus what we have here in Genesis chapter six? Yeah, um, so. These Apkalu, in some cases, they're they're bad because they're giving these magic practices that can um, hurt society, and so sometimes they're they're villains. A lot of times, they're heroes. They're cultural heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, in this story, they're not heroes. They're, they're definitely not heroes. They're kind of the bad guy. Yeah. And instead of the sons of God coming down and creating these demigod children who are giving this wonderful knowledge to humanity. They just bring violence. Yeah. They produce these mighty warrior Nephilim. So maybe a common example uh, is Hercules. Uh, an example of like a, um, a hero that is a demigod kind of. I don't know if anybody's done like a study of like comparative mythology there, but I mean, okay, that's, it's not that's Mesopotamian. The, that's the category. But it's, guess, it's the same you know? category. Yeah. Or uh, here's another one, maybe Moana. Oh, um, the you're welcome, dude. Yeah, <laughs> the Rock. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever his name is, he's a demigod. So it's the same bad. kind of category. I should know that name. Uh, so that like these are Nephilim. Maui. <laughs> Maui. Yeah, Maui, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so so the Nephilim are these uh, demigod, kind of the, that category of yeah. part human, part divine, or some yeah. kind of small g god. And they're not these great. Uh, heroes in the culture. They're not these awesome no. teachers. They're bringing violence and death and helping the world to spiral into being completely ruined. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the men of renown uh, and the mighty men who are of old. Yeah. Now, isn't there some places in Scripture where like that phrase is used in a positive way, though? So the, the mighty men, Gibberim, um, David, his yeah. his warriors are Gibberim. So it, it just means mighty. Okay. It's not like necessarily a bad word. Okay. Um, but here it's just applied in such a yeah. way that they're, they're bad. Okay. Um, I did want to make a couple notes real quick on the sons of God. Yeah. Just to say, um, you know, if you want to check out a few verses just to see if you're not on the, the sons of God or spiritual beings boat, here's some places you can go to, to read about that if you're curious to learn that. So Job 38, 7, where it talks about the the sons of God being parallel to the morning stars. And then you also have Psalm 89, 6, where the sons of God are talked about as divine beings on the divine council. You have Job 1 and Job 2, where the sons of God are coming before God, and Satan comes amidst them and is having this conversation with Yahweh. Um, reading that as, as Satan, or the Satan, the Satan, 
is having a conversation with Yahweh in the midst of this gathering of the sons of God. This seems to be something more than the sons of God, the faithful humans at a church service or at their local synagogue or whatever, and then Satan comes among them to talk to God. Yeah, and, and weren't the like Jewish tradition, or at least Christians even, uh, viewed the sons of God as spiritual beings, like um, yeah. we, we were talking about earlier, the, the book of Enoch, yeah. uh, also I believe the book of Jubilee. And then uh, just when I was studying this, I, I, I noted that guys like Josephus and Philo, um, also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, they all understood the sons of God to be spiritual beings. So this is not something that we've come up with in, in recent times. This is a very old, traditional understanding of who the sons of God are. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the standard uh, interpretation in antiquity, people understood uh, that, that the sons of God were spiritual beings, and there's there's other stories like this in um, comparative mythology where you've got like Prometheus who brings fire, this you know kind of divine knowledge down to humans, and he's a bad guy for that sort of. Yeah, well, and, and even in the New Testament, it seems that Peter and, and Jude they do talk about the uh, what's going on here in Genesis six is uh, these are uh, spiritual beings. Yeah, they definitely do. If you want to read more about that, check out Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm um, or the the article that he pulls a lot from. It's like a 40-page article. It's it's almost a book itself. Uh, is Amar Unus on the origin of the Watchers comparative study of antediluvian wisdom in Mesopotamian Jewish traditions. So another mouthful, <laughs> but that's a good one too if you want to really dive super deep into this. Yeah, those are two really good resources. Uh, mainly, I would say, for most people, just go to go to Heiser, um, the, either the Unseen Realm or his less footnoted version, Supernatural. Yeah. Yeah, those would be really good books to go over the sons of God and just the, the ancient worldview in terms of spiritual beings and what they are. Whether you're trying to learn about this subject or just spiritual beings in general, I recommend that one. So anyway, these sons of God, these spiritual beings, they came down, and I, I think most translations say they took wives. Um, the word for wife... In Hebrew is the same word for woman, so this may not be, um, you know, all these these gods came down and got white picket fences and set up, uh, you know, had a marriage covenant with all these women. This may have been something a, a little darker. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember the idea that they took. Yeah. This is a very similar language to what we see back in uh, Genesis with Eve, mm-hmm. that she, she saw that the fruit was desirable. And she took it, and she she ate. And so here, what do we have that's similar to that? Um, yeah, they, they see the women, and they take yeah. as they choose. So it's automatically linking these spiritual beings back to Eve's fall narrative. In the same way that the woman is deceived by the serpent, which is actually a spiritual being, to look and see and to take. So now spiritual beings are taking women, and that's part of their fall. So you see this kind of inversion here. And then something else that's going on is that the author is showing us the the second problem with the world. So we often think of Genesis 3, the fall, as like the only problem with the world is our um, fallenness and sin, which, yes, that is a big problem. It's a true problem. But there is also the rebellion of the spiritual beings, some of which happened here. And that's part of why the author mirrors Eve's fall or humanity's fall with this occurrence of the sons of God taking women for themselves. Humanity is spiraled into polygamy and violence, and now these spiritual beings have come and just amplified that and given them tools and warriors to carry out that violence even better. Yeah. Now, I will say, if, if these are wives, and, and this is where I think I did a, when I was researching this, 
I remember them saying that if these were wives, the implication here is that in in that day, that it was common for uh, the, the the father of the daughter to give his wife. So it's like mm. this uh, this idea that humanity had become so corrupt that they were willingly giving their daughters to these gods uh, as a as a gift or an offering, wow, and yeah. that uh, uh, maybe they were hoping that. They would receive these sons who would be establish their name, establish their name much. and power yeah. and stuff. So I don't know if that's going on here or not, yeah. but that's a possibility, I think. Another background of this could actually be, and that that, that might be what's what's going on. I mean, it doesn't really give us a lot of detail. It no. just kind of, you know, it kind of just says, "Hey, you know that Mesopotamian tradition? We're we're just letting you know we're keying into it and then running with it yeah. um, to give you a different narrative." But there was also a, a ritual where the king would go and meet with, I think at the top of a ziggurat, I can't remember, but would go and meet with a cult prostitute. Um, I think it's like a yearly festival. Now, the king, by nature of being king, he's a god. Right. The cult prostitute, she is human, but she's also at that point um, possessed with a god in a sense. Okay. And so they have an offspring that is two-thirds god, one-third man, like gotcha. Gilgamesh. Right. So that that may also be part of the background to this is this um, practice of having these divine sons to establish kingship and things like that. Isn't there a connection though to the Nephilim being giants somewhere? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Numbers thirteen thirty three, oh. they are connected to all the um, sons of Anak in Canaan. Yeah. So let me read that Numbers thirteen one because uh, that, that's a pretty direct connection. Um, uh, Starting in verse 32 of Numbers 13. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, and they had spied out, saying the land... So, so this is in the context of um, like Caleb and Joshua and the, the spies going into the promised land uh, to check it out. And so they bring back this report. Um, the land through which we have gone to spy out, it's a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height, uh, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we s- seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so there, there's the direct connection between the Nephilim and being these very tall giants. Yeah, yeah. and in Deuteronomy 2, you actually see where these Anakim, who are related to the Nephilim, are also related to the Emim, the Horites, the Rephaim, and some other people groups. So there's all these different giant clans in the land of Canaan and elsewhere. Um, whenever you see giants in scripture, it's it's these Nephilim dudes. And if we ever get into, um, if we ever go far enough to make it into the conquest, we'll be talking a lot about them, actually. <laughs> so what we're seeing in, at the beginning of Genesis 6, this world that's described as being completely demonized. Yeah. Uh, wickedness. Verse 5, the Lord saw... The wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's just this over-the-top description of a world that's gone completely rebellious. Yeah, I mean, really the idea here is that we started with the world in Tohu Vavohu in chapter 1. It's in a state of ruin, and now once again we are back into a state of ruin. So we see in verse 12... Uh, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then uh, verse 13, I think, is significant. And God said to Noah, uh, in the ESV version says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. And that kind of makes God 
seem like this vengeful guy. But if you look at the footnote, it's interesting. Another alternative translation to that in verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, which implies that God looks down at the world, it's corrupt, it's rebellious, and they're about to, to destroy themselves. And, and that's what God is looking at in this moment. And so the, the flood in the story of Noah especially is, is meant to be a, a story of God, uh, not out of anger destroying the world, but out of a broken heart. And it even talks about that God grieved this. It doesn't use a word that implies that he was um, over the top angry at what's going on, but he's brokenhearted. And the the flood is basically a reset on, on creation because everything had gotten so corrupt. This is God's way of cleaning the slate and starting fresh with Noah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the world started with Tohu Vavohu, and now we're we're back into it. He tried to take yeah. it from from ruin into a working temple where he lived with the humans in a good place. Now he's had to he's withdrawn from creation, and the humans have completely ruined it. And so, I mean, like you said, he's not just up there like I don't like what they're doing. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna get rid of it. He's having to restart creation, yeah. in a sense, and he's well. This is his way of saving creation. It's not this. Not this is yeah. not him. I mean, he does well, decreate saving, saving humanity. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, saving humanity, not saving creation. Like he's decreating uh, through the flood. Uh, everything that we saw in in chapter one kind of reverses itself, um, and we'll, we'll get into that. I'm sure here in a little bit, but yeah, uh, but yeah, this is God very much. Um, Saying let's let's start over. I'm going to save humanity, and this is how I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he made a promise in Genesis three to stick with this family, and so he's he's staying true to that promise. Right. So let's uh, let's close out this session just with a kind of a quick summary of what we've talked about. And so we uh, we've talked about the the context of what's going on in chapter six, and the, we've talked specifically about the the sons of God and how there's a strong argument that. Uh, the sons of God were spiritual beings that came and, and saw, uh, were attracted to uh, the, the daughters of man or the, the uh, women, and they produced these giant Nephilim. And this is kind of a poke in the eye uh, to the other uh, pagan stories that were uh, there in, in their day. And, and the, these Nephilim were not heroes. They were evil in it just continue this spiral of humanity and the world becoming this place that was totally wicked. Uh, and God sees this and is brokenhearted and decides to, to save humanity through uh, Noah because he remembers Noah. Um, and once we get to chapter 8, that's like the center of the chiasm of the, the whole flood story, um, that God remembers Noah and uh, remembers his promise ultimately that he made back in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve that he would one day uh, use the offspring of the woman to uh, to redeem humanity. And so with that, uh, next week our, we will uh, pick back up uh, again with the, the flood narrative and work our way a little bit further. We're going to talk about the boat. We're going to talk about the boat, uh, the, the temple boat. Well, uh, yeah. I'm just going to give them, I'm just going to leave that hang. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Cool. (laughs) All right, looking forward to it. All right.